Chapter Twenty One. Ellen White's reports on the Minneapolis conference. A statement presenting the historical backgrounds. This chapter presents a statement by Ellen White prepared a few weeks after the close of the general conference in 1888. She looks back upon the scene and describes what took place. The meetings at Minneapolis came into better perspective as the months elapsed. And Ellen White's statement is most enlightening and significant. A brief review of the historical setting is in place. The Minneapolis General Conference was notable for the Bible studies and discussions on the law in Galatians and on the righteousness of Christ received by faith. This session, attended by 91 delegates, was held October 17 to November 4 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in our newly built church. As is customary, a number of Seventh-day Adventists who were not delegates were also present. The session was preceded by a seven-day ministerial institute, which met from October 10 through October 16. The Bible studies commenced in the institute in some cases continued into the general conference session, occupying the Bible study hour. Ellen White was present and participated in both the institute and the 19-day session. The session itself was quite routine but constructive. Reports were received, and meetings of various associations, such as the Sabbath School, Health and Temperance, and Tract and Missionary, were held. Fields of labor were assigned to the ministers. Plans were laid for the advancement of the cause. Officers were elected, and committees appointed. An on-the-ground review of accomplishments and sentiments comes to us from the pen of W. C. White. Who two days before the close of the session wrote to a fellow minister laboring in the southern states? We are just at the close of another general conference, and in a few days the delegates will be scattered to their respective fields, and another year's work begun. This has been a very interesting conference, and although not accompanied with all that peace and harmony that sometimes has been manifest, it is perhaps as profitable a meeting as was ever held. For many important principles were made prominent, and some conclusions arrived at that will be of great value, as they may influence our future work. Many go forth from this meeting determined to study the Bible as never before, and this will result in clearer preaching. As you have no doubt noticed in the bulletin, many advanced steps have been taken as to our foreign missions, also some good moves for the advancement of the work in the South. W. C. White. Letter to Smith Sharp, written from Minneapolis, Minnesota, November two, eighteen eighty-eight. It will be observed that together with his report of progress, Elder White made mention of the lack of peace and harmony that sometimes has been manifest in our general conference sessions. In this, he was referring to the theological discussions that made the eighteen eighty-eight meeting different from any other general conference in Adventist history. These discussions began in the week-long ministerial institute, when, according to the agenda, such topics as the Ten Kingdoms, the Divinity of Christ, the healing of the deadly wound, and justification by faith were to be considered. The discussion of the Ten Kingdoms grew bitter and consumed a disproportionate amount of time. Some topics scheduled were crowded out. Near the close of the institute, Elder E. J. Wagoner. 
associate editor of the Signs of the Times, began a series of studies on the law in Galatians that merged into his presentation of the Christian's faith and the righteousness of Christ. These continued through the first week of the General Conference session. It was this series of studies, especially those that touched on the divisive subject of the law in Galatians, that sparked the controversy that followed. No transcription of the discussions was made, but the sketchy notes of one or two delegates, Ellen White's records, and the recollections of many who were present reveal the bitterness of the controversy and the baleful effects of the negative attitude of several prominent church leaders. Even before the delegates assembled at Minneapolis, there had been dispute on the key theological topics for several years. There was also building in the hearts of some an attitude of resistance to and non-acceptance of Ellen White's messages of warning and reproof. She early observed a strange and antagonistic attitude manifested toward her by some of the leading ministers. As E.J. Wagoner led into an examination of the law in Galatians and salvation by faith, a debating spirit dominated some in the discussions. This greatly troubled Ellen White. Although she was not ready to agree with Elder Wagoner on all the fine points of his presentations on the law in Galatians, her heart was warmed by his clear enunciation of the principles of justification by faith and of righteousness obtained through faith in Christ. She spoke twenty times in Minneapolis, and especially in the early morning ministers' meetings she pleaded for open-minded Bible study. She herself did not speak on the topic of righteousness by faith. The reactions to the emphasis on this vital truth were mixed. At the 1893 General Conference session, A.T. Jones, speaking of the reception of the truth set forth at Minneapolis, reported, I know that some there accepted it, others rejected it entirely. You know the same thing. Others tried to stand halfway between and get it that way. General Conference Bulletin, 1893, page 185. The discussions were at times heated, some fearing that the new emphasis would weaken the church's strong position on God's law, particularly the Sabbath truth, strongly resisted the message on righteousness by faith. No conference actions were taken on this point or any other point brought forward in the Bible studies. Ellen White reported in a letter written on the closing day of the session, a letter appearing in this section, My courage and faith have been good, notwithstanding that almost incomprehensible tug-of-war they had been through, and she expressed the conviction, as she saw it, at close range, that the meeting will result in great good. Letter 82, 1888. A few weeks later, she wrote her statement looking back at the Minneapolis General Conference, a major portion of which is embodied in this section. In the weeks and months following the session, a hard core of opposition developed in Battle Creek, the church headquarters, and the location of three of its major institutions. Ellen White frequently absented herself from Battle Creek, going into the field to carry the message to the churches. At times she worked with elders Jones and Wagoner as all three engaged in presenting the precious truths of the gospel. She led out an important and successful meeting of our ministers in January 1889 in South Lancaster, where many were greatly blessed. A report is included in this chapter. 
The Ellen G. White files carry a powerful address on the basic principles of salvation by faith as given at the Ottawa, Kansas camp meeting, May 11, 1889. This and her report on the response appear in the E.G. White book, Faith and Works, pages 63 to 84. There was victory in Chicago and at Denver, Colorado, where at the camp meeting held in September 1889, she spoke to the workers on the need for a true concept of righteousness by faith. The Denver address appears in this section. While attending the general conference session of 1889, held just a year after the Minneapolis meeting, she reported, We are having most excellent meetings. The spirit that was in the meeting at Minneapolis is not here. All moves off in harmony. There is a large attendance of delegates. Our five o'clock morning meeting is well attended, and the meeting's good. All the testimonies to which I have listened have been of an elevating character. They say that the past year has been the best of their life. The light shining forth from the Word of God has been clear and distinct. Justification by faith, Christ our righteousness. The experiences have been very interesting. Manuscript 10, 1889, published in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 361. On February 3, 1890, as she addressed the ministers assembled at Battle Creek for a ministerial institute, she reviewed her experiences in the field during 1889. Her statement forms an appropriate part of this introduction. We have traveled all through to the different places of the meetings that I might stand side by side with the messengers of God that I knew were His messengers, that I knew had a message for His people. I gave my message with them right in harmony with the very message that they were bearing. What did we see? We saw a power attending the message. In every instance we worked, and some know how hard we worked. I think it was a whole week going early and late at Chicago in order that we might get these ideas in the minds of the brethren. The devil has been working for a year to obliterate these ideas, the whole of them, and it takes hard work to change their old opinions. They think they have got to trust in their own righteousness and in their own works and keep looking at themselves and not appropriating the righteousness of Christ and bringing it into their life and into their character. And we work there for one week, one week had passed away before there was a break, and the power of God, like a tidal wave, rolled over that congregation. I tell you, it was to set men free. It was to point them to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And there at South Lancaster, the mighty movings of the Spirit of God were there. Some are here that were in that meeting. God revealed His glory and every student in the college was brought to the door there in confession, and the movings of the Spirit of God were there. And thus it was from place to place. Everywhere we went we saw the movings of the Spirit of God. Do you think, like the ten lepers, I shall keep silent, that I shall not raise my voice to sing the righteousness of God and praise Him and glorify Him? I try to present it to you that you may see the evidence that I saw. But it seems that the words go as into empty air. And how long is it to be thus? How long will the people at the heart of the work hold themselves against God? How long will men here sustain them in doing this work? Get out of the way, brethren. 
take your hand off the ark of God and let the Spirit of God come in and work in mighty power. Manuscript 9, 1890. Note the sentiment of the last paragraph just quoted. While the reception of the message of salvation by faith was resisted by some at the Minneapolis General Conference and accepted by others in the days that followed, resistance built up rapidly at the heart of the work. The reception among church members in the field, as reported by Ellen White, was quite different. The stubborn resistance participated in by some, see Testimonies to Ministers, page 363, at the very headquarters of the church greatly retarded the work that the Lord intended should be accomplished. Of this, Ellen White wrote as the year 1890 came to a close, The prejudices and opinions that prevailed at Minneapolis are not dead by any means. The seeds sown there in some hearts are ready to spring into life and bear a like harvest. Testimonies to Ministers, page 467. In this same connection, she wrote, Some have failed to distinguish between pure gold and mere glitter. And she added, The true religion, the only religion of the Bible, that teaches forgiveness only through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior, that advocates righteousness by the faith of the Son of God, has been slighted, spoken against, ridiculed, and rejected. Page 468. In his book, Through Crisis to Victory, Elder A. V. Olson recounts the history and documents the gradual change for better that ensued in the five or six years after Minneapolis. Nonetheless, there was a tragic setback in the advancement of the cause of God. Ellen White recognized this and at times mentioned it, usually in incidental statements. At no time, however, did she intimate or declare that there was an official rejection by the church leaders of the precious message brought to the attention of the General Conference in 1888. Rather, on December 19, 1892, just four years after that notable conference, in a letter addressed to Dear Brethren of the General Conference, she triumphantly declared, In reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, Praise God, as I see what God has wrought. I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past history. We are now a strong people, if we will put our trust in the Lord, for we are handling the mighty truths of the Word of God. We have everything to be thankful for. General Conference Bulletin, 1893, page 24. See Life Sketches, page 196, Testimonies to Ministers, page 31. Again in 1907, she wrote, The church is to increase in activity and to enlarge her bounds. While there have been fierce contentions in the effort to maintain our distinctive character, yet we have, as Bible Christians, ever been on gaining ground. Letter 170, 1907, Selected Messages, Book 2, pages 396 and 397. With this background, we introduce the historical chapter of this section, The Compilers. Precious Promises versus Gloomy Pictures It was by faith I ventured to cross the Rocky Mountains for the purpose of attending the general conference held in Minneapolis. 
At Minneapolis, we met a large delegation of ministers. I discerned at the very commencement of the meeting a spirit which burdened me. Discourses were preached that did not give the people the food which they so much needed. The dark and gloomy side of the picture was presented before them to hang in memory's hall. This would bring no light and spiritual freedom, but discouragement. I felt deeply moved by the Spirit of the Lord Sabbath afternoon, October 13, 1888, to call the minds of those present to the love God manifests to His people. The mind must not be permitted to dwell on the most objectionable features of our faith. In God's Word, which may be represented as a garden filled with roses and lilies and pinks, we may pluck by faith the precious promises of God, appropriate them to our own hearts, and be of good courage, yes, joyful in God. Or we may keep our attention fastened on the briars and thistles, and wound ourselves severely, and bemoan our hard lot. God is not pleased to have His people hanging dark and painful pictures in memory's hall. He would have every soul plucking the roses and the lilies and the pinks, hanging memory's hall with the precious promises of God, blooming all over the garden of God. He would have us dwelling upon them, our senses sharp and clear, taking them in their full richness, talking of the joy that is set before us. He would have us living in the world, yet not of it, our affections taking hold of eternal things. He would have us talking of the things which He has prepared for those that love Him. This will attract our minds, awaken our hopes and expectations, and strengthen our souls to endure the conflicts and trials of this life. As we dwell on these scenes, the Lord will encourage our faith and confidence. He will draw aside the veil and give us glimpses of the saints' inheritance. As I presented the goodness, the love, the tender compassion of our Heavenly Father, I felt that the Spirit of the Lord was resting not only upon me, but upon the people. Light and freedom and blessing came to the hearers, and there was hearty response to the word spoken. The social meeting that followed evidenced that the word had found lodgment in the hearts of the hearers. Many bore testimony that this day was the happiest of their lives, and it was indeed a precious season, for we knew the presence of the Lord Jesus was in the assembly, and that to bless us. I knew that the special revealing of the Spirit of God was for a purpose, to quell the doubts, to roll back the tide of unbelief which had been admitted into hearts and minds concerning Sister White and the work the Lord had given her to do. Many refreshed, but not all. This was a season of refreshing to many souls, but it did not abide upon some. Just as soon as they saw that Sister White did not agree with all their ideas and harmonize with the propositions and resolutions to be voted upon in that conference, the evidence they had received had as little weight with some as did the words spoken by Christ in the synagogue to the Nazarenes. Their hearts, the hearers at Nazareth, were touched by the Spirit of God. They heard, as it were, God speaking to them through His Son. They saw, they felt the divine influence of the Spirit of God, and all witnessed to the gracious words that proceeded from His mouth. But Satan was at their side with his unbelief, and they admitted the questioning and the doubts, and unbelief followed. The Spirit of God was quenched. 
In their madness they would have hurled Jesus from the precipice, had not God protected him, that their rage did not harm him. When Satan once has control of the mind, he makes fools and demons of those who have been esteemed as excellent men. Prejudice, pride, and stubbornness are terrible elements to take possession of the human mind. Ellen White counsels with some of the leaders. I had received a long epistle from Elder Butler, which I read carefully. Note, the president of the General Conference was detained in Battle Creek because of illness. I was surprised at its contents. I did not know what to do with this letter, but as the same sentiments expressed in it seemed to be working and controlling my brother ministers, I called a few of them together in an upper room and read this letter to them. They did not, any of them, seem to be surprised at its contents, several saying that they knew this was the mind of Elder Butler, for they had heard him state the same things. I then explained many things. I stated that which I knew was a right and righteous course to be pursued, brother toward brother, in the exercise of investigating the Scriptures. I knew the company before me were not viewing all things in a correct light, therefore I stated many things. All my statements set forth correct principles to be acted upon, but I feared that my words made no impression upon them. They understood things in their way, and the light which I told them had been given to me was to them as idle tales. Appeals at morning meetings. I felt very much pained at heart over the condition of things. I made most earnest appeals to my brethren and sisters when assembled in the morning meetings and entreated that we should make this occasion a season of profit, searching the Scriptures together with humility of heart. I entreated that there should not be such freedom in talking in regard to things of which they knew but little. All needed to learn lessons in the school of Christ. Jesus has invited, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 If we daily learn the lessons of humility and lowliness of heart, there will not be the feelings which existed at this meeting. There are some differences of views on some subjects, but is this reason for sharp, hard feelings? Shall envy and evil surmisings and imaginings, evil suspicion, hatred and jealousies become enthroned in the heart? All these things are evil and only evil. Our help is in God alone. Let us spend much time in prayer and in searching the Scriptures with a right spirit, anxious to learn and willing to be corrected or undeceived on any point where we may be in error. If Jesus is in our midst and our hearts are melted into tenderness by His love, we shall have one of the best conferences we have ever attended. A Busy and Important Session There was much business to be done. The work had enlarged. New missions had been opened and new churches organized. All should be in harmony freely to consult together as brethren at work in the great harvest field, all working interestedly in the different branches of the work and unselfishly considering how the Lord's work could be done to the best advantage. If ever there was a time when as a conference we needed the special grace and enlightenment of the Spirit of God, it was at this meeting.
There was a power from beneath moving agencies to bring about a change in the constitution and laws of our nation, which will bind the consciences of all those who keep the Bible Sabbath, plainly specified in the fourth commandment as the seventh day. The time has come when every man should be found doing his duty to the uttermost of his ability to hold up and vindicate the law of God before our own people and the world, working to the limit of his capacity and entrusted talents. Many are blinded, deceived by men who claim to be ministers of the gospel, and they influence very many to consider that they are doing a good work for God when it is the work of Satan. Satan's Divisive Strategy Now Satan had a counsel as to how he should keep pen and voice of Seventh-day Adventists silent. If he could only engage their attention and divert their powers in a direction to weaken and divide them, his prospect would be fair. Satan has done his work with some success. There has been variance of feelings and division. There has been much jealousy and evil surmising. There have been many unsanctified speeches, hints, and remarks. The minds of the men who should be heart and soul at work, prepared to do mighty strokes for God at this very time, are absorbed in matters of little consequence. Because the ideas of some are not exactly in accordance with their own on every point of doctrine involving minor ideas and theories which are not vital questions, the great question of the nation's religious liberty now involving so much, is to many a matter of little consequence. Satan has been having things his own way, but the Lord has raised up men and given them a solemn message to bear to his people, to wake up the mighty men to prepare for battle for the day of God's preparation. This message Satan sought to make of none effect, and when every voice and every pen should have been intensely at work to stay the workings and powers of Satan, there was a drawing apart. There were differences of opinion. This was not at all the way of the Lord. The Law in Galatians, One Point of Difference At this meeting, the subject of the Law in Galatians was brought before the ministers. This subject had been brought into the conference three years before. We know that if all would come to the Scriptures with hearts subdued and controlled by the influence of the Spirit of God, there would be brought to the examination of the Scriptures a calm mind, free from prejudice and pride of opinion. The light from the Lord would shine upon His Word and the truth would be revealed. But there should be prayerful, painstaking effort and much patience to answer the prayer of Christ that His disciples may be one as He is one with the Father. The earnest, sincere prayer will be heard, and the Lord will answer. The Holy Spirit will quicken the mental faculties, and there will be a seeing eye to eye. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Psalm 119.130 Justification and Christ's Righteousness Presented Elder E. J. Wagoner had the privilege granted him of speaking plainly, and presenting his views upon justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ in relation to the law. This was no new light, but it was old light placed where it should be in the third angel's message. What is the burden of that message? John sees a people. He says, Here is the patience of the saints. 
Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14.12 This people John beholds just before he sees the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse 14 The faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. It has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to John. Faith in Christ as the sinner's only hope has been largely left out, not only of the discourses given, but of the religious experience of very many who claim to believe the third angel's message. Truths Ellen White had presented since 1844 At this meeting I bore testimony that the most precious light had been shining forth from the Scriptures in the presentation of the great subject of the righteousness of Christ connected with the law, which should be constantly kept before the sinner as his only hope of salvation. This was not new light to me, for it had come to me from higher authority for the last forty-four years, and I had presented it to our people by pen and voice in the testimonies of his Spirit. But very few had responded except by assent to the testimonies borne upon this subject. There was altogether too little spoken and written upon this great question, the discourses of some might be correctly represented as like the offering of Cain, Christless. The mystery of godliness. The standard by which to measure character is the royal law. The law is the sin detector. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But the sinner is constantly being drawn to Jesus by the wonderful manifestation of his love in that he humiliated himself to die a shameful death upon the cross. What a study is this! Angels have striven, earnestly longed, to look into the wonderful mystery. It is a study that can tax the highest human intelligence, that man, fallen, deceived by Satan, taking Satan's side of the question, can be conformed to the image of the Son of the infinite God. That man shall be like him, that because of the righteousness of Christ given to man, God will love man, fallen but redeemed, even as he has loved his Son. Read it right out of the living oracles. This is the mystery of godliness. This picture is of the highest value to be placed in every discourse, to be hung in memory's hall, to be uttered by human lips, to be traced by human beings who have tasted and known that the Lord is good, to be meditated upon, to be the groundwork of every discourse. There have been dry theories presented, and precious souls are starving for the bread of life. This is not the preaching that is required or that the God of heaven will accept, for it is Christless. The divine picture of Christ must be kept before the people. He is that angel standing in the sun of heaven. He reflects no shadows. Clothed in the attributes of deity, shrouded in the glories of deity, and in the likeness of the infinite God, he is to be lifted up before men. When this is kept before the people, creature merit sinks into insignificance. The more the eye looks upon him, the more his life, his lessons, his perfection of character are studied, the more sinful and abhorrent will sin appear. By beholding, a man can but admire and become more attracted to him more charmed, and more desirous to be like Jesus until he assimilates to his image 
and has the mind of Christ. Like Enoch, he walks with God. His mind is full of thoughts of Jesus. He is his best friend. Study Jesus, our pattern. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 Study Christ. Study his character, feature by feature. He is our pattern that we are required to copy in our lives and our characters, else we fail to represent Jesus but present to the world a spurious copy. Do not imitate any man, for men are defective in habits, in speech, in manners, in character. I present before you the man Jesus Christ. You must individually know him as your Savior before you can study him as your pattern and your example. Said Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Romans 1, 16-19 Grateful that minds were stirred by God's Spirit. We felt deeply and solemnly grateful to God that minds were being stirred by the Spirit of God to see Christ in the living oracles and to represent Him to the world, but not in words merely. They see the Scripture requirements that all who claim to be followers of Christ are under obligation to walk in His footsteps, to be imbued with His Spirit, and thus to present to the world Jesus Christ, who came to our world to represent the Father. In representing Christ, we represent God to our world. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, 9. Let us inquire, are we reflecting in the church and before the world the character of Jesus Christ? A great deal deeper study is required of us in searching the Scriptures. Placing the righteousness of Christ in the law distinctly reveals God in His true character and reveals the law as holy, just, and good, glorious indeed when seen in its true character. If all our ministering brethren could have come to their Bibles together with the Spirit of Christ, respecting each other, and with true Christian courtesy, the Lord would have been their instructor. But the Lord has no chance to impress minds over which Satan has so great power. Everything that does not harmonize with their mind and their human judgment will appear in shadows and dark outlines. The Spirit of Many Burdened Ellen White My burden during the meeting was to present Jesus and His love before my brethren, for I saw marked evidences that many had not the Spirit of Christ. My mind was kept in peace, stayed upon God, and I felt sad to see that a different spirit had come into the experience of our brother ministers, and that it was leavening the camp. There was, I knew, a remarkable blindness upon the minds of many, that they did not discern where the Spirit of God was and what constituted true Christian experience. And to consider that these were the ones who had the guardianship of the flock of God was painful. The destitution of true faith, 
the hands hung down because not lifted up in sincere prayer. Some felt no need of prayer. Their own judgment, they felt, was sufficient, and they had no sense that the enemy of all good was guiding their judgment. They were as soldiers going unarmed and unarmored to the battle. Can we marvel that the discourses were spiritless, that the living water of life refused to flow through obstructed channels, and that the light of heaven could not penetrate the dense fog of lukewarmness and sinfulness? I was able to sleep but a few hours. I was writing all hours of the morning, frequently rising at 2 and 3 a.m., and relieving my mind by writing upon the subjects that were presented before me. My heart was pained to see the spirit that controlled some of our ministering brethren, and this spirit seemed to be contagious. There was much talking done. A presentation of truth she could endorse. When I stated before my brethren that I had heard for the first time the views of Elder E. J. Wagoner, some did not believe me. I stated that I had heard precious truths uttered that I could respond to with all my heart, for had not these great and glorious truths, the righteousness of Christ and the entire sacrifice made in behalf of man, been imprinted indelibly on my mind by the Spirit of God? Has not this subject been presented in the testimonies again and again? When the Lord had given to my brethren the burden to proclaim this message, I felt inexpressibly grateful to God, for I knew it was the message for this time. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance, the law and the gospel going hand in hand. I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin-bearer that he might become our sin-pardoning Savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. The only safety for the Israelites was blood upon the doorposts. God said, When I see the blood... I will pass over you. Exodus 12:13. All other devices for safety would be without avail. Nothing but the blood on the doorposts would bar the way that the angel of death should not enter. There is salvation for the sinner in the blood of Jesus Christ alone, which cleanseth us from all sin. The man with a cultivated intellect may have vast stores of knowledge. He may engage in theological speculations. He may be great and honored of men and be considered the repository of knowledge. But unless he has a saving knowledge of Christ crucified for him and by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ, he is lost. Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ will be our only hope for time and our song throughout eternity. Battling prejudice 
and false accusations. When I plainly stated my faith, there were many who did not understand me, and they reported that Sister White had changed. Sister White was influenced by her son, W.C. White, and by Elder A.T. Jones. Of course, such a statement coming from the lips of those who had known me for years, who had grown up with the third angel's message, and had been honored by the confidence and faith of our people, must have influence. I became the subject of remarks and criticism. But no one of our brethren came to me and made inquiries or sought any explanation from me. We tried most earnestly to have all our ministering brethren rooming in the house meet in an unoccupied room and unite our prayers together, but did not succeed in this but two or three times. They chose to go to their rooms and have their conversation and prayers by themselves. There did not seem to be any opportunity to break down the prejudice that was so firm and determined, no chance to remove the misunderstanding in regard to myself, my son, and E.J. Wagoner and A.T. Jones. I tried to make another effort. I had that morning, at an early hour, written matter that should come before our brethren, for then my words would not be misstated. Quite a number of our leading responsible men were present, and I deeply regretted that a much larger number were not taken into this council, for some of those present, I knew, began to see things in a different light, and many more would have been benefited had they had the opportunity to hear what I had to say. But they did not know and were not benefited by my explanations and with the plain thus saith the Lord, which I gave them. Questions were asked at that time. Sister White, do you think that the Lord has any new and increased light for us as a people? I answered, Most assuredly. I do not only think so, but can speak understandingly. I know that there is precious truth to be unfolded to us if we are the people that are to stand in the day of God's preparation. Ellen White encourages open-minded study. Then the question was asked whether I thought the matter had better drop where it was, after Brother Wagoner had stated his views of the law in Galatians. I said, by no means. We want all on both sides of the question. But I stated that the spirit I had seen manifested at the meeting was unreasonable. I should insist that there be a right spirit, a Christ-like spirit, manifested such as Elder E. J. Wagoner had shown all through the presentation of his views, and that this matter should not be handled in a debating style. The reason I should urge that this matter should be handled in a Christ-like spirit was that there should be no thrust made against their brethren differing with them. As Elder E. J. Wagoner had conducted himself like a Christian gentleman, they should do the same, giving the arguments on their side of the question in a straightforward manner. The question of the law in Galatians not vital. The remark was made, if our views of Galatians are not correct, then we have not the third angel's message, and our position goes by the board. There is nothing to our faith. I said, Brethren, here is the very thing I have been telling you. This statement is not true. It is an extravagant, exaggerated statement. If it is made in the discussion of this question, I shall feel it my duty to set this matter before all that are assembled, and whether they hear or forbear, tell them the statement is incorrect. 
The question at issue is not a vital question and should not be treated as such. The wonderful importance and magnitude of this subject has been exaggerated, and for this reason, through misconception and perverted ideas, we see the spirit that prevails at this meeting, which is unchristlike, and which we should never see exhibited among brethren. There has been a spirit of Phariseeism coming in among us, which I shall lift up my voice against wherever it may be revealed. I could see a great want of wise discrimination and of good judgment. The evil of such things has often been presented before me. The difference of opinion was made apparent to both believers and unbelievers. These things made such an impression upon my mind that I felt that my brethren had met with a great change. This matter had been set before me while I was in Europe, in figures and symbols, but the explanation was given me afterwards, so that I was not left in the dark in regard to the state of our churches and of our ministering brethren. I returned to my room questioning what was the best course for me to pursue. Many hours that night were spent in prayer in regard to the law in Galatians. This was a mere moat. Whichever way was in accordance with a thus saith the Lord, my soul would say, Amen and Amen. But the spirit that was controlling our brethren was so unlike the spirit of Jesus, so contrary to the spirit that should be exercised toward each other, it filled my soul with anguish. In the next morning's meeting for the ministers, I had some plain things to say to my brethren, which I dared not withhold. The salt had lost its savor, the fine gold become dim. Spiritual darkness was upon the people, and many evidenced that they were moved with a power from beneath, for the result was just such as would be the case when they were not under the illumination of the Spirit of God. What pages of history were being made by the recording angel? The leaven had indeed done its sharp work, and nearly leavened the lump. I had a message of reproof and warning for my brethren, I knew. My soul was pressed with anguish. To say these things to my brethren causes me far greater anguish than they caused those to whom they were addressed. Through the grace of Christ, I experienced a divine compelling power to stand before my ministering brethren, in the name of the Lord, hoping and praying that the Lord would open the blind eyes. I was strengthened to say the words which my secretary took in shorthand. Manuscript 24, 1888 Minneapolis Approving Ground The Lord was testing and proving His people who had had great light, whether they would walk in it or turn from it under temptation. For but few know what manner of spirit they are of until circumstances shall be of a character to test the spirit which prompts to action. In many the natural heart is a controlling power, and yet they do not suppose that pride and prejudice are entertained as cherished guests and work in the words and actions against light and truth. Our brethren who have occupied leading positions in the work and the cause of God should have been so closely connected with the source of all light that they would not call light darkness and darkness light. Righteousness by faith does not downgrade the law. Holding up Christ as our only source of strength, presenting His matchless love in having the guilt of the sins of men charged to His account and His own righteousness imputed to man, in no case does away with the law 
or detracts from its dignity. Rather, it places it where the correct light shines upon and glorifies it. This is done only through the light reflected from the cross of Calvary. The law is complete and full in the great plan of salvation, only as it is presented in the light shining from the crucified and risen Savior. This can be only spiritually discerned. It kindles in the heart of the beholder ardent faith, hope, and joy that Christ is his righteousness. This joy is only for those who love and keep the words of Jesus, which are the words of God. Were my brethren in the light, the words that the Lord gave me for them would find a response in the hearts of those for whom I labored. As I saw that the hearts with which I longed to be in harmony were padlocked by prejudice and unbelief, I thought best for me to leave them. My purpose was to go from Minneapolis the first of the week. I wished to meditate, to pray that I might know in what manner we could work to present the subject of sin and atonement in the Bible light before the people. They were greatly needing this kind of instruction that they might give the light to others and have the blessed privilege of being workers together with God in gathering in and bringing home the sheep of his fold. What power must we have from God that icy hearts, having only a legal religion, should see the better things provided for them, Christ and his righteousness? A life-giving message was needed to give life to the dry bones. Manuscript 24, 1888 Ellen White's appraisal on the closing day, written to a member of her home family, November 4, 1888. Our meeting, the Minneapolis General Conference Session, is closed. I have on last Sabbath given my last discourse. There seemed for the first time to be considerable feeling in the congregation. I called them forward for prayers, although the church was densely packed. Quite a number came forward. The Lord gave me the spirit of supplication, and His blessing came upon me. I did not go out to meeting this morning. This has been a most laborious meeting for Willie, and I have had to watch at every point, lest there should be moves made, resolutions passed, that would prove detrimental to the future work. I have spoken nearly twenty times with great freedom, and we believe that this meeting will result in great good. We know not the future, but we feel that Jesus stands at the helm, and we should not be shipwrecked. My courage and faith have been good, and have not failed me. Notwithstanding, we have had the hardest and most incomprehensible tug-of-war that we have ever had among our people. The matter cannot be explained by pen unless I should write many, many pages, so I had better not undertake the job. Elder Olson is to be president of the General Conference, and Brother Dan Jones of Kansas is to help him. Elder Haskell will serve until Brother Olson shall come from Europe. Compiler's Note in the absence of George I. Butler, President of the General Conference, Elder Haskell chaired the General Conference session. Shortly after the close of the session, W. C. White was asked to serve as Acting General Conference President, which he did for nearly six months. I cannot tell what the future may reveal, but we shall remain for about four weeks in Battle Creek and get out a testimony that should come out just now without delay. Then we can see how matters move at the great center of the work. We are determined to do all we can in the fear of God to help our people in this emergency. 
A sick man's mind has had a controlling power over the General Conference Committee, and the ministers have been the shadow and echo of Elder Butler, about as long as it is healthy and for the good of the cause. Envy, evil surmisings, jealousies have been working like leaven until the whole lump seemed to be leavened. Today, Sunday, I have not attended meeting, but have had to visit considerably. I am grateful to God for the strength and freedom and power of His Spirit in bearing my testimony, although it has made the least impression upon many minds than at any period before in my history. Satan has seemed to have the power to hinder my work in a wonderful degree, but I tremble to think what would have been in this meeting if we had not been here. God would have worked in some way to prevent this spirit brought to the meeting having a controlling power. But we are not the least discouraged. We trust in the Lord God of Israel. The truth will triumph, and we mean to triumph with it. We think of all you at home and would be pleased to be with you but our wishes are not to be consulted. The Lord is our leader. Let Him direct our course, and we will follow where He leads the way. Letter 82, 1888 Two excerpts from Minneapolis Sermons Note, Ellen White spoke twenty times at Minneapolis, but did not there enter into presentations on righteousness by faith. Rather, she labored to lead men and women to open their minds to Bible-based truth. Now what we want to present is how you may advance in the divine life. We hear many excuses. I cannot live up to this or that. What do you mean by this or that? Do you mean that it was an imperfect sacrifice that was made for the fallen race upon Calvary? That there is not sufficient grace and power granted us that we may work away from our own natural defects and tendencies? that it was not a whole Savior that was given us? Or do you mean to cast reproach upon God? Well, you say, it was Adam's sin. You say, I am not guilty of that, and I am not responsible for his guilt and fall. Here all these natural tendencies are in me, and I am not to blame if I act out these natural tendencies. Who is to blame? Is God? Why did God let Satan have this power over human nature? These are accusations against the God of heaven, and he will give you an opportunity, if you want it, of finally bringing your accusations against him. Then he will bring his accusations against you when you are brought into his court of judgment. Manuscript 8, 1888, Sabbath, October 20, 1888. Her talks that were reported appear as a 60-page appendix, pages 242 to 302, in the book, through crisis to victory. If God could have changed his law to meet man in his fallen condition, Christ need not have come to this world. Because the law was immutable, unchangeable, God sent his only begotten Son to die for the fallen race. But did the Savior take upon himself the guilt of human beings and impute to them his righteousness in order that they might continue to violate the precepts of Jehovah? No, no. Christ came because there was no possibility of man's keeping the law in his own strength. He came to bring him strength to obey the precepts of the law. And the sinner, repenting of his transgression, may come to God and say, O Father, I plead forgiveness through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. 
God will accept all who come to him in the name of Jesus. Manuscript 17, 1888, Sunday, October 21, 1888. Three months after Minneapolis, when we do our best, thank God it is not too late for wrongs to be righted. Christ looks at the Spirit, and when he sees us carrying our burden of faith, his perfect holiness atones for our shortcomings. When we do our best, he becomes our righteousness. It takes every ray of light that God sends to us to make us the light of the world. Letter 22, 1889, published in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 368. The Reception in the Field of the Message of Righteousness by Faith Special meetings began at South Lancaster on Friday, January 11, 1889. We were glad to find the church well filled with those who had come to receive benefit from the meetings. Compilers note, this was among the first meetings in which Ellen White participated in presenting the message of righteousness by faith in the field subsequent to the Minneapolis conference. Through 1889, she frequently led out in carrying the messages to the churches. Some of her sermons were reported, as was the one at Ottawa, Kansas, on May 11. This typical sermon is published in Faith and Works, pages 63 to 79. Delegates were present from Maine, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and other states. We realized that there was a work to be done in setting things in order, which man's best efforts could not accomplish without the aid of God. Our hearts were drawn out in earnest supplication to God that He would work in our behalf. We felt burdened for those who had been bearing the message of truth to others, lest they should close their hearts to some of the precious rays of heaven's light that God had sent them. Jesus rejoiced when His followers received His messages of truth. On Sabbath afternoon many hearts were touched, and many souls were fed on the bread that cometh down from heaven. After the discourse, we enjoyed a precious social meeting. The Lord came very near and convicted souls of their great need of His grace and love. We felt the necessity of presenting Christ as a Savior who was not afar off, but nigh at hand. When the Spirit of God begins to work upon the hearts of men, the fruit is seen in confession of sin and restitution for wrong. All through the meetings, as the people sought to draw nearer to God, they brought forth works meet for the repentance by confessing one to another where they had wronged each other by word or act. There were many, even among the ministers, who saw the truth as it is in Jesus in a light in which they had never before reviewed it. They saw the Savior as a sin-pardoning Savior and the truth as the sanctifier of the soul. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many hold distorted views. There are many who seem to feel that they have a great work to do themselves before they can come to Christ for His salvation. They seem to think that Jesus will come in at the very last of their struggle and give them help by putting the finishing touch to their life work. It seems difficult for them to understand that Christ is a complete Savior and able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. They lose sight of the fact that Christ Himself is the way, the truth, and the life. 
when we individually rest upon Christ with full assurance of faith, trusting alone to the efficacy of His blood to cleanse from all sin, we shall have peace in believing that what God has promised He is able to perform. The Very Message Presented As our brethren and sisters opened their hearts to the light, they obtained a better knowledge of what constitutes faith. The Lord was very precious. He was ready to strengthen His people. The meetings continued a week beyond their first appointment. The school was dismissed, and all made earnest work of seeking the Lord. Elder Jones came from Boston and labored most earnestly for the people, speaking twice and sometimes three times a day. The flock of God were fed with soul-nourishing food. The very message the Lord has sent to the people of this time was presented in the discourses. Meetings were in progress from early morning till night, and the results were highly satisfactory. Both students and teachers have shared largely in the blessing of God. The deep movings of the Spirit of God have been felt upon almost every heart. The general testimony was borne by those who attended the meeting that they had obtained an experience beyond anything they had known before. They testified their joy that Christ had forgiven their sins. Their hearts were filled with thanksgiving and praise to God. Sweet peace was in their souls. They loved everyone and felt that they could rest in the love of God. I have never seen a revival work go forward with such thoroughness and yet remain so free from all undue excitement. There were many who testified that as the searching truths had been presented, they had been convicted in the light of the law as transgressors. They had been trusting in their own righteousness. Now they saw it as filthy rags in comparison with the righteousness of Christ, which is alone acceptable to God. While they had not been open transgressors, they saw themselves depraved and degraded in heart. They had substituted other gods in the place of their heavenly Father. They had struggled to refrain from sin, but had trusted in their own strength. We should go to Jesus just as we are, confess our sins, and cast our helpless souls upon our compassionate Redeemer. The Review and Herald, March 5, 1889. Need for a Proper Concept of Righteousness by Faith By invitation I made some remarks in the minister's tent to the ministers referring to counsel to ministers made at the Colorado camp meeting September 13, 1889, on presenting righteousness by faith. We talked some in regard to the best plans to be arranged to educate the people here upon this very ground in reference to home religion. Many people seem to be ignorant of what constitutes faith. Many complain of darkness and discouragements. I asked, Are your faces turned toward Jesus? Are you beholding Him, the Son of Righteousness? You need plainly to define to the churches the matter of faith and entire dependence upon the righteousness of Christ. In your talks and prayers there has been so little dwelling upon Christ, His matchless love, His great sacrifice made in our behalf, that Satan has nearly eclipsed the views we should have and must have of Jesus Christ. We must trust less in human beings for spiritual help and more, far more, in approaching Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. We may dwell with a determined purpose on the heavenly attributes of Jesus Christ. 
We may talk of his love. We may tell and sing of his mercies. We may make him our own personal Savior. Then we are one with Christ. We love that which Christ loved. We hate sin, that which Christ hated. These things must be talked of, dwelt upon. I address the ministers, lead the people along step by step, dwelling upon Christ's efficiency until by a living faith they see Jesus as he is, see him in his fullness, a sin-pardoning Savior, one who can pardon all our transgressions. It is by beholding that we become changed into his likeness. This is present truth. We have talked the law, this is right, but we have only casually lifted up Christ as the sin-pardoning Savior. We are to keep before the mind the sin-pardoning Savior. We are to present Him in His true position, coming to die to magnify the law of God and make it honorable, and yet to justify the sinner who shall depend wholly upon the merits of the blood of a crucified and risen Savior. This is not made plain. The soul-saving message, the third angel's message, is the message to be given to the world. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are both important, immensely important, and must be given with equal force and power. The first part of the message has been dwelt upon mostly, the last part casually. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it, we must live it, we must pray it, and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their home life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 Christ-filled discourses needed. There have been entire discourses, dry and Christless, in which Jesus has scarcely been named. The speaker's heart is not subdued and melted by the love of Jesus. He dwells upon dry theories. No great impression is made. The speaker has not the divine unction and how can he move the hearts of the people? We need to repent and be converted. Yes, the preacher converted. The people must have Jesus lifted up before them, and they must be entreated to look and live. Why are our lips so silent upon the subject of Christ's righteousness and his love for the world? Why do we not give to the people that which will revive and quicken them into a new life? The Apostle Paul is filled with transport and adoration as he declares, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5-11 In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Colossians 1, 14-17 This is the grand and heavenly theme that has in a large degree been left out of the discourses because Christ is not formed within the human mind. And Satan has had his way that it shall be thus, that Christ should not be the theme of contemplation and adoration. This name, so powerful, so essential, should be on every tongue. Wherefore I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Colossians 1, 25-29 Here is the work of the ministers of Christ. Because this work has not been done, because Christ and his character his words and his work have not been brought before the people, the religious state of the churches testifies against their teachers. The churches are ready to die because little of Christ is presented. They have not spiritual life and spiritual discernment. Fear of the message of righteousness by faith. The teachers of the people have not themselves become acquainted by living experience with the source of their dependence and their strength. And when the Lord raises up men and sends them with the very message for this time to give to the people, a message which is not a new truth, but the very same that Paul taught, that Christ himself taught, it is to them a strange doctrine. They begin to caution the people who are ready to die because they have not been strengthened with the lifting up of Christ before them. Do not be too hasty. Better wait and not take up this matter until you know more about it. And the ministers preach the same dry theories when the people need fresh manna. The character of Christ is an infinitely perfect character, and he must be lifted up. He must be brought prominently into view, for he is the power, the might, the sanctification, and righteousness of all who believe in him. The men who have had a pharisaical spirit think if they hold to the good old theories and have no part in the message sent of God to his people, they will be in a good and safe position. So thought the Pharisees of old, and their example should warn ministers off that self-satisfied ground. Present inspiring themes of the gospel. We need a power to come upon us now and stir us up to diligence and earnest faith. Then, baptized with the Holy Spirit, we shall have Christ formed within, the hope of glory. Then we will exhibit Christ as the divine object of our faith and our love. We will talk of Christ. We will pray to Christ and about Christ. We will praise His holy name. We will present before the people His miracles, His self-denial, His self-sacrifice, His sufferings, 
and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and triumphant ascension. These are the inspiring themes of the gospel, to awaken love and intense fervor in every heart. Here are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, a fountain inexhaustible. The more you seek of this experience, the greater will be the value of your life. The living water may be drawn from the fountain, and yet there is no diminution of the supply. Ministers of the gospel would be powerful men if they set the Lord always before them and devoted their time to the study of his adorable character. If they did this, there would be no apostasies. There would be none separated from the conference because they have, by their licentious practices, disgraced the cause of God and put Jesus to an open shame. The powers of every minister of the gospel should be employed to educate the believing churches to receive Christ by faith as their personal Savior, to take Him into their very lives and make Him their pattern to learn of Jesus, believe in Jesus, and exalt Jesus. The minister should himself dwell on the character of Christ. He should ponder the truth and meditate upon the mysteries of redemption, especially the mediatorial work of Christ for this time. Dwell more on the Incarnation and Atonement. If Christ is all and in all to every one of us, why are not His incarnation and His atoning sacrifice dwelt upon more in the churches? Why are not hearts and tongues employed in the Redeemer's praise? This will be the employment of the powers of the redeemed throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. We need to have a living connection with God ourselves in order to teach Jesus then we can give the living personal experience of what Christ is to us by experience and faith. We have received Christ, and with divine earnestness we can tell that which is an abiding power with us. The people must be drawn to Christ. Prominence must be given to His saving efficacy. The true learners sitting at Christ's feet discover the precious gems of truth uttered by our Savior, and will discern their significance and appreciate their value. And more and more, as they become humble and teachable, will their understanding be open to discover wondrous things out of His law, for Christ has presented them in clear, sharp lines. The doctrine of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ is a mystery to a large share of those whose names are upon the church books. If Christ were upon the earth speaking to His people, he would reproach them for their slowness of comprehension. He would say to the slow and uncomprehending, I have left in your possession truths which concern your salvation, of which you do not suspect the value. Oh, that it might be said of ministers who are preaching to the people and to the churches, then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Luke 24, 45. I tell you in the fear of God that up to this time the Bible truths connected with the great plan of redemption are but feebly understood. The truth will be continually unfolding, expanding, and developing, for it is divine like its author. How Jesus Taught the People Jesus did not give full comments or continued discourses upon doctrines, but he oft spoke in short sentences as one sowing the heavenly grains of doctrines like pearls which need to be gathered up by a discerning laborer. 
The doctrines of faith and grace are brought to view everywhere he taught. Oh, why do not ministers give to the churches the very food which will give them spiritual health and vigor? The result will be a rich experience in practical obedience to the Word of God. Why do the ministers not strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die? When about to leave his disciples, Christ was in search of the greatest comfort he could give them. He promised them the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to combine with man's human effort. What promise is less experienced, less fulfilled to the church than the promise of the Holy Spirit? When this blessing, which would bring all blessings in its train, is dropped out, the sure result is spiritual drought. This is the reproach that meets the sermonizer. The church must rise and no longer be content with the meager due. Our Need for the Holy Spirit Oh, why do our church members stop short of their privileges? They are not personally alive to the necessity of the influence of the Spirit of God. The church may, like Mary, say, They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. John twenty thirteen. Ministers preaching present truth will assent to the necessity of the influence of the Spirit of God in the conviction of sin and the conversion of souls, and this influence must attend the preaching of the Word. But they do not feel its importance sufficiently to have a deep and practical knowledge of the same. The scantiness of the grace and power of the divine influence of the truth upon their own hearts prevents them from discerning spiritual things and from presenting its positive necessity upon the church. So they go crippling along, dwarfed in religious growth, because they have in their ministry a legal religion. The power of the grace of God is not felt to be a living, effectual necessity, an abiding principle. Oh, that all could see this and embrace the message given them of God. He has raised up his servants to present truth that because it involves lifting the cross has been lost sight of and is buried beneath the rubbish of formality. It must be rescued and be reset in the framework of present truth. Its claims must be asserted and its position given it in the third angel's message. Let the many ministers of Christ sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, and seek God while he is to be found. Call upon him while you are now lying at the foot of the cross of Calvary. Divest yourselves of all pride, and as representative guardians of the churches, weep between the porch and the altar, and cry, Spare thy people, Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach. Take from us what thou wilt, but withhold not thy Holy Spirit from us, thy people. Pray, O oh pray, for the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Manuscript 27, 1889